Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The word of the Lord. One ancient hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning and um, singing these songs and, and reading these, this text and even the weather outside does feel a little bit like Christmas in May. Um, which is not a bad thing. Um, and just like we so often do in, in Advent, coming to this text, um, rejoicing in the gift of this child, let us do the same today. So let us come before the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, the one who comes to save us from our sins, the one who is Emmanuel, God with us. Father God, help us grasp more deeply this gift that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. That's our prayer for this day, and it's in that child's name we pray. Amen. Well, what we find here is the angel, an angel coming to Joseph in a dream. And here we find a very interesting command Because usually when angels appear to people in Scripture, they tell them, do not be afraid and do not fear me. Do not fear the angel. For example, in the account of of Luke, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and he says, Mary, don't be afraid. And here we also find a command not to fear, but it's interesting because it's a different object. He's telling him, Joseph, don't fear. But he's not saying, Joseph, don't fear me, the angel. He's saying, Joseph, don't fear to take Mary as your wife. And why is it that Joseph would fear this action? Why is it that Joseph might fear taking Mary as a wife? Well, presumably it's, it's the public ridicule and, and derision he fears. People might assume that they've conceived this child out of wedlock and even more, He fears if he can actually trust this woman to whom he is engaged. He worries, he fears that Mary has been unfaithful to her pledge. Joseph fears the public, and Joseph fears Mary. But Joseph is a kind man. He he seeks to break the engagement quietly. He doesn't want to draw attention to the matter. But again, unlike the usual command of the angel, Joseph is not told, don't fear the angel. He is told, take her as a wife because don't fear people. The angel is telling Joseph that things are not what they seem. 
As the angel explains, that which is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. Don't fear people, Joseph. Don't fear the judgment of hasty public opinion, and don't fear your faithful fiancé. This is the work of God. But does that mean that Joseph is to be totally without fear? No. Joseph is told here to fear his true enemy. And that true enemy is not ultimately other people. And the name of the baby in the womb reveals this true enemy. Joseph, don't fear the crowd. Joseph, don't fear Mary. Instead, Joseph, fear the enemy that you can never escape by your own efforts. Joseph, fear the enemy that God alone can rescue you from. As the angel says, Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means the Lord God saves. It means Yahweh saves, Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And what God saves his people from is their sins. Joseph, don't fear people. Joseph, fear the bondage of sin. And so I want to look at this passage under the two names given to this child, the name of Jesus and the name of of Emmanuel. So let's look first at the name of Jesus, the name that tells us that God is the one who saves us from our sins. And that makes sense, because we all know that something is not right in the world. We all know that something isn't right even with ourselves. We all sense this, and in some way or another, we all wonder, what are we supposed to do? And it's interesting, because right now, as we speak, There's a $400 billion plan to build a city somewhere in the American Southwest, a city called Telosa. I don't know if you've you've heard about this, but it's meant to be a kind of blueprint for a new vision, a new vision of civic life, a kind of beacon to a lost world. And it's interesting because the name Telosa, well, it actually comes from the Greek word telos, which speaks to something's full fruition, something's full perfection, something's full consummation. The classic example is that the acorn reaches its telos, its perfection, by becoming an oak tree. And so the idea here is if we just tweak a few parts of civic life, then finally we'll have those conditions that we need to reach our ultimate human telos, our ultimate human perfection. This is the city of Telosa. But of course, the, the people that would move into the city, they can't help but take themselves, their selfishness, their griefs, their laments, their health problems, their inevitable death, their inevitable cynicism, the, the very weariness that they were trying to escape in the first place. And honestly, if Telosa is our telos, then we're pretty disappointing oak trees. If telosa is all we need to reach our telos as humans, well then we're really not that bad off, and our ultimate good really isn't all that great. For example, some of the aims put forward in telosa are a 15-minute commute for all citizens, 
shared decision-making concerning budgets and city planning, and a sustainable use of resources. And all these things are very good things. For example, we should strive for sustainability in our use of resources. But is this the best we can do? This is good, but does it actually meet the deepest desires of our heart? If Telosa is our telos, then humanity is not all that spectacular. All we need to become the proverbial oak tree is a better commute, a better format for town hall meetings, and a better use of, of fossil fuels. And again, all of these are good things. These are things that we rightly desire, but is this enough to make life wor worth living? Is this enough to rescue us from our sense that something is deeply wrong with the world? The philosopher Charles Taylor is, is really helpful here. He, he tells us that in modernity, we operate at what he calls a low altitude. We don't think we're all that bad, and the good that we hope for isn't really all that great. And he says a key cause of this low altitude is the loss of the concept of sin. Because you might think, well, if you affirm the concept of sin, isn't that a deep and violent attack on the dignity of the human person? If you are affirming the notion of sin, aren't you putting harmful and hurtful burdens upon people? Aren't people already struggling enough with self-image and self-esteem and identity? Why on earth would you want to weigh them even more, weigh them down even more with an outdated term that focuses on how bad they are instead of their positive potential? Aren't you just adding fuel to the fire of anxiety and insecurity that rages inside of all of our hearts? But Taylor tells us not to move so quickly. Because if there's no such thing as sin, and we ourselves are not sinners, then this middle-range existence that we've come to inhabit, well, it's not really imperfect. There's nothing really wrong. And so to dismiss the notion of sin is to dismiss the notion that things could get much better than they are right now. Our present reality of selfishness and pain and exploitation and conflict and death, well, this is about as good as it gets. We might tweak society here and there, but we're never really going to transform it. Again, this is the hope of Telosa. But we have to ask ourselves, what actually is the true attack on human dignity? Because if you have the notion of sin and the notion that you are a sinner, you're confronted with the truth that you are meant for something so much greater than the existence that you currently experience. But if you lose sin, well, then you're pretty much okay, and the best you can hope for is a better commute, better public discourse, and a better allocation of, of resources. Again, all good things, but, is the, if, if, but sorry, if this is all that we need, we're very small creatures. But the notion of sin tells us you are meant for so much more than this. But the rejection of sin tells us this is about all that you can hope for. And so Taylor argues, and I believe he's right here, that the notion of sin actually affirms. It doesn't undo the great and deep dignity of the human person. But the notion of sin also does so much more. Not only does it give us hope for a much better world without sin, 
but it also enables us to understand the dark depths of ourselves. Recently, each of us have been met each morning with the news of the ongoing atrocities in Ukraine. Civilians young and old are being murdered, often execution style. Assaults upon women are rampant, and we've all seen images of streets littered with dead bodies. And so we have to ask ourselves, how are we meant to make sense of this? As Columbia University professor Andrew Del Banco writes, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. And it's important to note that Del Banco is not a Christian. He's just pointing out that the profound evil that we see in the world, it cannot adequately be explained by mere secular resources. Can conditioning or improper socialization or unhealthy psychological situations really do justice to the things that we're seeing in Ukraine? Do we have a real and substantial explanation for evil? Well, Del Banco doesn't think so. So then what can account for these things? The political dissident uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn is very helpful here. I've, I've used this quote before, but it's, it's, it's extremely insightful. He says, If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us. But the dividing line, the line dividing good and evil, it cuts through the heart of every human being. What are we to make of this? What is the evil in our own heart? Well, Matthew has a diagnosis, and that diagnosis is sin. And this is a fearful diagnosis, because if we affirm sin, then we affirm a deep corruption in ourselves. We affirm that we ourselves are capable of the worst of evils, and this is the very thing that the angel instructs Joseph to fear. Don't fear me, Joseph. Don't fear other people. Don't fear the crowd. Don't fear Mary. No, Joseph, fear the deep sin within you. But Joseph, take heart, because this child, he can do what you cannot this child will save his people. He will save God's people from their sin. And is this message degrading to human dignity? No, because the reality of sin means that we were made for so much more than any modern solution can offer. Even more, sin alone can explain the evil that we see in the world. Sin shows us how low we can go as humanity, but it also shows us how high God intended humanity to be. And so when we affirm sin, we affirm something superlatively humbling, but also superlatively hopeful. And once we grasp this, we are finally ready to hear of this child who alone can save us from sin. This is why he bears the name of Jesus the name the Lord saves. And what is it that this child saves us from? Well, he saves us from our sin. And this brings us to our second point, the name of Emmanuel. 
The name Jesus tells us what the Lord will do, but the name Emmanuel tells us how the Lord will do it, how the Lord will rescue us from our sin. As we talked about last week, at each point in Matthew's gospel, Matthew is showing us how Jesus fulfills the story of Israel. And here, Matthew tells us that the birth of Jesus is the fulfillment of a prophecy spoken long ago by the prophet Isaiah. Matthew here quotes Isaiah chapter 7, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And when Isaiah is speaking here, he's addressing the unfaithful king Ahaz. Ahaz is fearful. He is terrified by an alliance between the northern kingdom of of Israel, the kingdom of which Judah used to be one people with, an alliance between them and the kingdom of Syria. And they plan to together attack Judah and replace Ahaz with a kind of puppet king. So militarily speaking, things in Judah look quite grim. And it's into this threat that Isaiah speaks. He says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And strictly speaking, the Hebrew here does not specify a virgin specifically. Rather, the term can also be translated a young maiden. It's it's a more general term than virgin. It can include virgin, but it doesn't have to, and we'll, we'll come back to that in just a minute. But just like doctor can include pediatrician, so here the term young maiden can include virgin. And with that in mind, the prophecy continues. Isaiah says, He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. And so what are we to make of this? Because clearly there's some form of immediate fulfillment of this prophecy, and it concerns these kings of Israel and Syria. This is what I believe is happening here. In the immediate context, Isaiah is telling Ahaz that life will go on as usual. Just as in peacetime, young maidens will marry and they will give birth to boys. And before the newborn child is able to choose good and evil, before the newborn child is able to make a conscious, intentional, and deliberate choice about anything, this combined military threat that you fear, it'll be eliminated. It will soon pass. And that's exactly what happens here. God preserves and protects his people. But what kind of sign is this? Why call such a child Emmanuel? And I believe it's that this sign is showing an essential act in the trusting of God. Trusting in God's goodness and power and sovereignty. What does trust in God look like amidst the approach of this military catastrophe? Well, it looks like faithful and earnest and diligent performance of an ordinary, faithful life. In this case, it's getting married and having children. Again, what is the sign of Emmanuel? It's the sign of God with us. It's the sign that even as the world may seem to be collapsing around us, we are called to faithfully going, sorry, faithfully living out a human life. To say, for instance, I will never have children because I could never bring a child into this world, is to say, I don't 
trust God to properly provide a future place for human flourishing. It's to say that God is not with us. It's to say God has abandoned us. Take, for instance, a letter that the pastor and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote to his fiancée, Maria von Wedemeyer, and he wrote this from the confines of a Nazi prison cell. He writes, When I consider the state of the world, the total obscurity enshrouding our personal destiny and my present imprisonment, our union can only be a token of God's grace and goodness, which summons us to believe in him. When Jeremiah said in his people's hour of direst need that houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land, it was a token of confidence in the future. That requires faith, and may God grant it to us daily. I don't mean the faith that flees the world, but the faith that endures in the world and loves and remains true to that world in spite of all the hardships it brings. Our marriage Our marriage must be a yes to God's earth. It must strengthen our resolve to do and accomplish something on earth. I fear that Christians who venture to stand on earth on only one leg will stand on heaven, stand in heaven on only one leg too. Bonhoeffer's reference here is to the prophet Jeremiah when Jeremiah is given his people instructions for their time of exile. In Jeremiah 29, God instructs the people to buy and live in houses, to plant and eat from gardens, to marry and to bear children, to increase, not to decrease, and to seek the welfare of that very city by which and into which they are exiled. What does that mean? Well, it means don't let exile keep you from God's good gifts to his people. Don't let Nazi Germany do this. And do not let the alliance of Syria and Israel do this. This is trust in God. This is God with us. For various reasons, we may marry or we may not. We may have children or we may not. We may increase or we may not. But the fear of Babylon, the fear of the people of Syria, the fear of ruthless regimes, the fear of economic markets, the fear of sensational reports on 24-hour news channels, the fear of the corrosive and polarizing rhetoric of social media, the fear of these things is no reason to refuse the good gifts of God. Do not refuse the joy of family and friends and good work and deep investment in your present community because you fear people and what they can do. To do so is to say God is not with us, but instead God has abandoned us. Perhaps you think the world around you is collapsing or perhaps you don't. Either way, don't cease to cultivate an ordinary, faithful life. Again, the angel tells Joseph, don't fear people, don't fear the crowd, don't fear what humans can do. Take this woman as your wife. But that's not the whole story, and that takes us back to the problem of sin, the problem of what to properly fear. Ahaz believed that his greatest problem was this impending military alliance, but he was wrong. Again, people and the things that they can do are not the proper object of Christian fear. If Ahaz's main problem was this military alliance, then all he needs is Telosa. 
He just needs a peaceful place where he can responsibly allocate resources, host functioning town hall meetings, and cut down the daily commute. But he's wrong. His problem is much worse, and the solution is much, much greater than Telosa. And how do we know this? Because we can look at the exchange between Ahaz and Isaiah before he gives the prophecy of Emmanuel. The Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you might weary God also? Ahaz tells Isaiah, No, no, I, I'm much too dignified for a sign from God. I don't need all that the Lord is willing to give me. I, I don't need to see his greatness. I don't need any help for my unbelief. I can conjure up all the belief and strength and piety I need on my own. Please, please, no sign. Let's not take this religion thing too far. Just defeat the enemies and I'll be fine. That, 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 that'll be sufficient, God. Th thank you very much. But God sees through this and he finds these words a great weariness. This very disposition, this pride, this is Ahaz's greatest problem. As Isaiah tells him, therefore the Lord will give you a sign. Because you are so prideful as to not want a sign, I will give you a sign. And this is not just Ahaz, this is all of us, because the sign that we are given is not at first a pleasing sign. As the Lord tells us, it reaches all the way to Sheol. Yet the birth of a child at, at wartime, that doesn't descend to Sheol, and, and neither does it reach all the way to heaven. And so the birth of children during the reign of Ahaz, well, that can't be the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. And again, as we said earlier, the Hebrew word here, of young maiden, it, it, it can denote virgin, just like the term doctor can denote the more specific pediatrician. But even here, we find a sense of deep anticipation. Anticipation that this ultimately points to a virgin birth. The Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, known as the, the Septuagint, which was completed almost 300 years before the birth of Christ, that's what Matthew quotes here. And the Septuagint speaks specifically of a virgin giving birth. And this shows us how the Jewish tradi tradition read and anticipated the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. Yes, God is with us in the birth of children at wartime and such childbearing. Those are acts that we trust God even when all seems lost. But the ultimate Emmanuel is different. It's God with us in a much deeper and fuller way. Emmanuel, God with us, is this child in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And the name Jesus again tells us that God saves us from our sin, but the name Emmanuel tells us how. And how is it that this child is God with us? Well, this child is God become human. This child is God with us by becoming one of us. But how? How does that save us from the enemy of sin? 
Well, the foundational problem of sin is pride. It's the deep belief that I am not what's wrong with the world, that I'm doing fine and that that, that, that people or, or that group, they're the problem, that I'm in the right and everyone else is at fault, that I know what is best for my life at any and all times, that I have earned and deserve every good thing that I have, that I've Sorry, the, 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 the most I need is, is just a tweak, not a transformation. That telosa would be enough to set things right. That I myself could never be brought to carry out atrocities, the kind we see in Ukraine. And that above all else, I certainly don't need the drastic intervention of God, be it through sign or something else. This is the pride of sin. And because sin has infected every bit of our being, our body, and soul, this is our default. But again, like Ahaz, this is a sign that we'd rather not see. And why? Because this sign, Emmanuel, is God the Son becoming human and living the perfect life of love to both God and neighbor. It's a sign that we ourselves are so lost in our sin that only God could come to us and only he could live the life we should have lived And there's still more here that we'd rather not see in this sign because Christ not only lived the perfect human life in our place, which shows the futility of our own efforts, but he also suffered the punishment of death and God's wrath upon the cross. This is the punishment that we, not he, deserved. And so when we look at this sign of Emmanuel, we find by our own efforts we are helpless and hopeless. And even more, when we look at the sign of Emmanuel, we see how horrible our sin truly is, that it merits the cross itself, the ultimate punishment. This sign reaches all the way to Sheol. In the words of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, he descended to hell. That is, Christ descended to Sheol, to the place of the dead. He experienced the death that we deserve. This sign is the full disclosure of what each of us in our sin deserve. This is a sign that at first we would rather not see. We're no different than Ahaz. This sign shows us how lost we truly are. But it also shows us something else. It shows us the great lengths that God will go to to save us. This is the sign of God becoming human, living the life we should have lived, dying the death we should have died, and him doing so because of his great love for us. This sign is God's great act of love, the greatest act of sacrificial love that the world has ever known. Christ does this for our salvation to save us from our sins. That's why he's named Jesus. So when we look at Christ, we see the depth of our sin, but we also see the deeper depths of God's love for us. God's salvation and human sin are exact opposites. And it's not until we see the sign, the salvation of Christ, that we see the full shape of sin. Each, salvation and sin, they're a kind of negative image of the other. As John Stott writes, 
For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. This sign is that we in our sin have tried to make ourselves like God and that God in our salvation has truly made himself like us. This is the sign of Christ, of Emmanuel, of God with us. But as Isaiah tells us, this sign also reaches as high as the heavens, and this brings us back to the Apostles' Creed. Yes, Christ descended to hell, but on the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Christ Emmanuel has descended to Sheol, but then he was raised from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. One day he will come again. He will come again and set the whole world right. And this is a much greater fulfillment, fulfillment than Telosa. This is a perfected creation without any and all sin and perfect communion with God. One day, every evil action ever committed will be avenged, will be punished, will be made right. On that day, we will see perfect justice realized. Christ himself will judge each and every person in all that they've done, and either you will bear that eternal punishment of this most perfect justice, or Christ himself will gently stoop down to assure you personally that he has already borne that punishment upon the cross. And at present, if we place our faith in Christ, receiving his righteousness and giving him our guilt, he is our Emmanuel, God with us, God with every bit of us. He has taken a human body and soul. He has suffered. He has been betrayed. He has experienced poverty and sickness and hunger and sorrow and even death. He knows the human experience firsthand. And so all the way up in heaven, he is with every bit of you. There's nothing you can undergo that he himself has not already confronted personally. If you struggle with pride, know that the one who defeated pride in the flesh, he prays for you. As Augustine tells us, in Christ, the humility of God heals the pride of humanity. If you struggle with bitterness, know that the one who defeated bitterness in the flesh prays for you. As Christ hung on the cross, he prayed for the forgiveness of the very ones who were murdering him. If you struggle with entitlement and selfishness, know that the one who defeated these things in the flesh prays for you. In Christ, God emptied himself of honor and glory and lived the humble life of a servant even to the point of death. There is no sin that Christ has not defeated in the flesh. He is God with us in his human soul, in his human body, in all the pain and sorrow and trials that come with human life in a fallen world. The one who has defeated every sin prays for you in your sin. One day in the resurrection, you will be free of sin. You will be free of jealousy and envy and pride and lust and anger. And what an amazing day that will be to be free of all of those things. But even now, Christ promises to conform you to his image. And so one final question. Do you really believe that Christ can change you? Do you really believe that Christ can work to kill the sins that you've been struggling with your whole life. 
Do you believe that this child really rescues us from our sin? It most likely will not be sudden as we mature, as we kill this sin through the work of Christ. It will likely be a lifelong process that is ever incomplete. But nonetheless, Christ does promise growth. In Christ, God is with every bit of us in the deepest recesses of our body and soul because Christ himself has assumed the deepest recesses of the human body and the human soul. Is this truth an operative reality in your life? Never think that you are beyond Christ's work of killing sin. You are not lower than Sheol, and Christ has already been there. We should not ultimately fear people or the things that they can do. What we should ultimately fear are the sins in our own heart. But this is not a fear that makes us tremble. Because Jesus, God with us, saves us from our sins. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that you have given us Christ, Jesus, the one who saves us from our sins, Emmanuel, who is God with us in every way possible. Father, thank you for his perfect life that he lived on our behalf. And Lord, even now we pray through his work that you would kill the sin that lingers deep within our hearts and give us hope as we look forward to the resurrection. Lord, our true tell us in a perfected creation free from any and all sin in perfect loving communion with you. What a wonderful promise. It's in that hope and that assurance that we pray. Amen. Amen.